Hello listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast, recorded here live in Seoul. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today we've got a very special... Wait, 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 wait. Breaking news. Chatter Carol. Can I stop you there? What is going on? We have relaunched and redesigned our NK News, NK Pro, KCNA Watch websites. Yes, you have. It It looks wonderful, actually. New fonts, new designs, new scaling for mobile devices. Tell us all about it. Yeah, it's actually almost two years of work. We worked with a very professional designer. If you, if you listen to the podcast and you're not a member of NK News, then you should check out the new website and join because we now have over 10,000 posts on NK News. That's incredible. And on NK Pro, I think there are almost 2,000 pro analyses. and Plus your data aggregators and uh, charts right. and yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, so in fact, if you are working on North Korea issues and you have not given NK Pro a try, I highly recommend you get in touch with us. Yeah. Membership at nknews.org. That's membership at nknews.org. My colleague Melanie, who is at the end of that email address, will be able to give you a free trial of the NK Pro site. And you can use that for a month, no obligations, and see, well, you can wonder how you lived without it. Mm. Now, where on the newly revamped site can people find the podcast? Oh, yeah. So the podcast, we've we've put actually a player on the front of the NK News homepage. And if you scroll down, you'll also find this kind of mosaic tapestry of podcast episodes all of which you can just press play and they'll start playing and there's there's a whole podcast dedicated section which is pretty cool because it has tags so Mm -hmm. for example let's say you want to get a podcast about history in north korea you just press that tag and it will filter you can do missile you know there's loads of of tags and it makes it really good to surface quality episodes you might have missed in the past we're over 100 episodes now chat so <laughs> that's correct should, should keep listening so thanks very much for that chat the revamped nk news and nk pro website where can people find it nknews.org and nknews.org forward slash pro Welcome, listeners, to the NK News Podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Thursday, the 28th of November, 2019. And today's guest is Professor Balaj Salantai. Remember, please, to have a look at the NK Shop for all of your holiday gift ideas, calendars, posters, T-shirts, postcards, and use the code PODCAST at the checkout to receive a $10 discount voucher. All right, my guest today, Dr. Balaj Salantai, is a professor in the Department of North Korean Studies at Korea University, where I once studied as an exchange student. He is a historian whose research is focused on the Cold War as well as the domestic and foreign policies of communist regimes with particular respect to North Korea, Vietnam, Mongolia and Albania. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Salantai. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. All right. So as a PhD student in history at Central, Univers- Central European University in Budapest, how did you come to be interested in the Hungarian diplomatic archives? Well, I used them first when I did my MA, which was more about Eastern Europe. Mm. And then I was interested in the period of distanization in general. And then it caught my attention that both Albania and North Korea did not undergo the same process like the others. I decided to have a look into the relevant documents from the same period when we had embassies in Pyongyang. And so I did find really very interesting things. Were you looking for anything in particular at that time? Well, I was really interested at how they reacted to this whole development, like, you know, Khrushchev's secret speech and others. But I must say I was incredibly lucky because the very first time I got some materials from 55, I stumbled upon documents on the famine of 55, which were never covered by anyone else before. Mm. So it was incredible luck indeed. <laughs> yeah. Now, I remember around the, fir- the time that we first met, I believe it would have been in uh, 2004, possibly 2005. Uh, that was around the time that you had an article published uh, titled, You Have No Political Line of Your Own, Kim Il-sung and the Soviets, 1953 to 1964, which uh, appeared in the Cold War International History Project Bulletin put out by the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. That title, You Have No Political Line of Your Own, what does it mean? And who said that to whom? It was a sense of um, my way to refute this statement because Mm. the statement was made by the Soviets who accused North Korea around 63, 64 
of just blindly following the Chinese line mm. to say that you really don't have any special Korean line, you just follow the Chinese line. But my, my argument was just the opposite, that North Korea usually had its own ideas what to do and what not to do. And that this own idea was something we could already see from 1953. Is that what you're saying? Well, the article covered the whole period from mm-hmm. 53 to 46. Um, no, no, 53 uh, to 64. So the statement was made around 64, as I remember. Ah. And the first signs of North Korea really going its own way were most coming visible around 54, 55. Uh, was that around the time of the uh, of Khrushchev's uh, secret speech? No, the secret speech came in 56, Pardon so it me, was okay. already before. Yeah. Uh, now, was this paper uh, published in 2004, was this based on your PhD uh, thesis? Yes, indeed. In fact, it's a kind of very much condensed version because the PhD thesis covered the whole period. Mm. And uh, your thesis uh, was well received and uh, you expanded it and published as a book. Is that correct? Yeah, indeed. It was really very lucky because it was published very soon after it was written as a thesis. Mm. Yeah, your uh, magnum opus uh, entitled uh, Kim Il-sung in the Khrushchev era, Soviet DPRK relations and the roots of North Korean despotism, 1953 to 1964. This was uh, published, if I'm correct, in early 2006 by Stanford University Press as part of the Cold War International History Project series. Uh, Sadly, the book's out of print now, but listeners can buy a second-hand copy from Amazon.com for just $974.43. There is a much easier way to ask me for the electronic tax. This is cheap. Zero. (laughs) Okay. Now, how was was your book initially received in 2006? Now, this was interesting because the first reaction was really positive. I got most of the reviews in early, like, favorable tone, so I really cannot complain about that. Mm -hmm. But on the long run, I may say that the book was usually used uh, to pick isolated facts of information. So it was respected as a deep research, but it was like not making impact uh, in the last section where I really tried to use a comparative analysis that why North Korea became really so repressive, mm. even by communist standards. And this uh, did not make much Im- impact. But as a kind of archival sol- scholarship, it got really positive responses. So I must be really grateful for that. You mentioned that you made a, a comparative analysis. What did you compare to what? Well, it was a kind of several level. That the first level was to compare North Korea with the East European countries, oh, yes. which did undergo distanciation. And so I tried to figure out why North Korea did not. And the next level was to compare it with Vietnam, which was also a divided Asian communist countries, Mm. country, and also had a bit similar Confucian past and colonial past. So again, my impression was that the North Vietnamese regime never became so totally despotic and repressive, and I tried to figure out then why. And in the last level, then I compared North Korea with some other extremely nepotistic dictatorships like, for example, Iraq or Syria, mm. which later came back in my research, to find some analogies that why a leadership acts that way. So it was like multi-level comparison. Okay. Do you feel that your book then has been uh, unfairly forgotten or overlooked? It always uh, happens, you know, with books which are a bit specialized, mm. that if you cover some really long period and you try to give a general overview, then it's a bit easier to become a fixture. But right. if it's a bit like specialized on one period, then people interested in other period, they may not keep it in mind. But mm. as it is known from some other cases, it was unfortunate that it was a bit forgotten. Well, exactly. Sorry to interrupt. I wondered uh, often if the matter with Charles Armstrong, which we'll discuss in more detail later on, whether that would have gone as far as it did if your book had been more prominent. Or, uh, or no, well remembered. No, not necessarily more prominent, but uh, more recently published, mm. because 
between 2006-2013 long way has passed. Probably if it had happened just closer to the publication of my book, probably Mm -hmm. people still would have had in their mind that, oh, this is so similar to something. But this way it was easier. Okay, now let's talk about the other uh, DPRK-related areas that you have researched uh, in the interim years. You've also written a paper or monograph entitled North Korea's Efforts to Acquire Nuclear Technology and Nuclear Weapons, Evidence from Russian and Hungarian Archives. Uh, when was that published? It was not long after, 2006. So officially the book is dated 2005. It was mostly a collection of documents with an introduction. Now, it leads me to one of my favorite and oft-repeated questions. I think uh, listeners to this podcast will be familiar with it. Uh, When do you believe or when does the evidence show uh, that North Korea uh, firmly decided to acquire nuclear weapons technology? It's difficult to say that when it exactly turned to an interest to develop weapons. What we can see is that the first time they did make threats about building something, was at least uh, 76, 77. Mm -hmm. So then it was already, they used it as a sort of uh, political bluff, partly toward the Soviet bloc countries, partly toward even South Korea, that there is a possibility that they may, and they one time they even claimed they already have, which was of course not true. Mm. Their interest in nuclear technology in general is much older because the first time I saw them asking for a like conventional nuclear reactor, this type of you know VVAR light water reactor, mm-hmm. this was in '67. You know the East European countries are building it, so North Korea also wanted it. Right. But when exactly this interest turned toward the idea? Uh, that uh, we can build it and should. Mm. It's a bit difficult to pinpoint because in principle, theoretically, already when China started pushing its own program that we have a right for our own atomic bomb, then very soon North Korea very openly supported their rights. So when was that? Just remind us of the timeline for Yeah, that? this was around, say, approximately it became really clear in 63, because mm. this is when the big powers, Soviet Union, US, Britain, they made test ban treaty, and then China very openly declared its opposition to it, and North Korea followed. So they very much like disagreed with any sort of control over building nuclear weapons. And the meaning was that the Soviets already have it and they want to prevent the other communist countries from acquiring the same capability. Now, some people who I've talked to uh, believe that uh, North Korea, or Kim Il-sung at least, uh, was keen to develop nuclear weapons right after the uh, the end of the Korean War because he saw... You know, he was determined not to allow his country to be destroyed by the bombardment in the same way that it had been during the war. Other people have said that the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a time when, when Kim Il-sung realized that the Soviets may not always protect him. So I've heard a number of different uh, timelines fairly early, and other people have said, well, no, maybe it was 90, you know, in the early 1990s. As you say, it's difficult to pinpoint a specific time. So do people who point to 1953 or 1963, are they uh, completely fantasizing or is it just difficult to say yes or no in in either case? When we do see a really serious military build-up, this is uh, 62, but not after the Cuban Missile Crisis, but already before. Mm. At least in the like summer or early fall of, of 19. 62, we already see North Korea making really huge efforts to create a bigger army, to build fortifications, everything. So it's very clear that it was not just a reaction to the missile crisis. Mm. But indeed, we may argue that North Korea had this distrust of the Soviet Union substantially before the Cuban crisis. I may mention two things. The first issue is that the U.S. makes its mutual security treaty with South Korea as early as 53. But the Soviets and the Chinese make their own with North Korea only in 61, much later. One reason of the delay was that in 1960, 
Japan was to renew its own security treaty with the US, which was unpopular in Japan, and mm. there was a chance that it may not be renewed. So I guess that the Soviets and the Chinese did not want to irritate Japanese public opinion because Korea was extremely sensitive issue after the war. Mm. But after the Japanese government did renew the treaty after a lot of like public demonstrations, then apparently China and the Soviet Union felt that now there is nothing to to lose, and they went ahead. Mm-hmm. North Korea wanted this substantially before, but this is when they could achieve. But then we have a twist because now there are two treaties, not one but two, but basically they cancel each each out. You mean the the treaty between North Korea and the Soviet Union and the treaty between North Korea and 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 China? Indeed, because when North Korea signs the treaties, they already feel in a very like uh, cautious and difficult way because as you know, Nobuo Shimotomai found out that they really had to wait with the Chinese treaty until they signed it with the Soviets because they were really afraid that if they do it first with China, the Soviets will not do it with them. Uh-huh. Now we have the treaties, but as I said, they cancel each out because if you have this situation of the Sino-Soviet split, it's almost impossible to integrate North Korea into a sort of regular defense system with regular military exercises like Team Spirit in the US side because you cannot make proper military preparations without clearly defining who the enemy is. Mm -hmm. But for North Korea, there is only one enemy. This is uh, the US South Korean side. But the Soviets would probably want military exercising potentially directed against China. China would potentially want military exercises potentially direct, directed against the Soviet Union. And once they start doing it, then the other country will back out. Mm-hmm. So basically, the Sino-Soviet split gave North Korea a chance to get something from both, mm-hmm. but also it deprived it from the possibility of getting maximum support from any of the two. No, oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, I've never heard that before. Now, you've also uh, written uh, Sino's, Sino-DPRK relations and Kim Il-sung's militant strategy, 1960. 1965 to 1967. Could you give us, uh, our listeners, a brief summary of that, please? Yeah, this is something really an interesting story because often it is believed that it, it was like very credibly, like uh, persuasively argued on the basis of some Chinese documents that in in 65, so it means like after the Sino-Soviet split, North Korea like approached China and raised the issue that maybe we start a new Korean war and then we would need Chinese military support. Mm. This is the narrative. And this was, as I said, very credibly argued by a Chinese scholar on the basis of Chinese archival sources, Chen Xiaohe, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But then I found some Hungarian documents, which ironically told, uh, really brought a twist into the story. Because Kim Il-sung made this tentative request to the Chinese in uh, in, uh, 65. But earlier, several months earlier in 65, the Chinese ambassador would go around in Pyongyang telling different Soviet bloc countries that we already have a kind of agreement with North Korea that we are going to start a Korean war. And then China would also like uh, bring get on on the US on everywhere in Indonesia, Vietnam. So it's like a continent wide offensive to kick out America from Asia. So and that was during the Vietnam War. Yeah, exactly. From this story, it's very evident that it's not China passively reacting or dismissing a North Korean request, mm. but China saying mm-hmm. it's not doesn't mean planning, but saying that oh, we have such a plan and we want it, not not simply the North Korean want. 
wanted, but we want it. And then, of course, it sounds very suspicious because that time relations between China and East Germany, Cuba are really bad. Mm. So you really cannot trust them telling something, uh, such a huge secret, you know, so confidentially. So my understanding was it was a sort of bluff to discourage the Americans uh, from uh, expanding their war in Vietnam because the Chinese were really worried that how far the Americans are going to go. Mm. Uh, but apparently, of course, Kim Il-sung heard of these statements and in my understanding, he wanted to test out, to figure out, to send feelers how seriously the Chinese mean it. But then he was still cautious because he's interested in doing something, but he doesn't feel ready yet. Now, it's interesting. I've probably you're familiar with this. I heard or I read a newspaper account maybe 15 years ago that some document had been discovered somewhere in an archive that suggested that Kim Il Sung once more approached China, this time in 1975. So after the fall of Saigon, mm-hmm. asking the Chinese to once more assist North Korea in, in finishing the unification project and, you know, uh, taking over South Korea. Is that something that you're familiar with? And is that true? Oh, yeah, this is often mentioned, and it's really kind of unclear to me even now, because it is clear that the Chinese disagreed with any sort of idea. What I am a bit, uh, like, suspicious that Kim Il-sung made this kind of statement in a way which immediately became public. And this is the total opposite of what he did in 1950. You know, before starting the Korean War, uh, North Korea deliberately toned down any sort of aggressive statement and pretended to be very nice and friendly and Mm -hmm. good citizen. To make a statement during a visit in China, allowing it to go public that I have an interest in starting a new Korean War, it would be really like a bit uh, out of, you know, tone that it's not exactly how you are going to start a war by announcing it publicly in advance. It's like my private opinion. He wanted to scare Pak Chongki a little bit more because he knew, of course, perfectly that the American withdrawal from South Vietnam and then the collapse of South Vietnam, it was really a very rude shock to South Korea. Mm. And there is a lot of questioning then that can we rely on the Americans if they were betraying the South Vietnamese? Maybe they would betray us next time. So I think Kim Il-sung is playing on that and he wants to like send a shiver up to the mm. back of Pak Chong-ki that, uh, that how much you can rely on the Americans and things like that. But I still need to look a bit more that what was discussed between Teng Xiaoping and Kim Il-sung and other Chinese leaders behind closed doors because this was more than just a sort of scare tactic. Mm. Now, in 2012, you wrote an article for the Journal of Cold War Studies titled In the Shadow of Vietnam, A New Look at North Korea's Militant Strategy 1962 to 1970. What was new about this look? Well, the first issue was that it was known or at least suggested a long time before that somehow the Vietnam War influenced the North Korean behavior. But what I found was that it was more complex than simply North Korea trying to imitate Vietnam. The first uh, new element in my analysis was that I identified stages in North Korean strategy, certain periods when they act differently than in the previous or next period. So in some situations, they feel that there is a chance to achieve their aims without an aggressive military approach. In some other periods, they feel the peaceful approaches are no longer possible. Uh, But uh, also the conditions for an aggressive militant strategy are not good. And then there is a period when they feel that it must be done and can be done. My analysis was that it's a sort of combination of factors which influenced and North Korean decision making, not only in this case, in many other cases also, that they look into the situation 
they put several things together what is in favor of this action what is against it and then they make a decision on the basis of this combination like for example in Vietnam the logic is like this that if the US is deeply involved in Vietnam then supposedly it's less able to protect South Korea Mm. and doesn't want to get involved in a new crisis in Korea but if the Americans are going to withdraw from Vietnam, then again they would have a more or less free hand in Korea. So it means North Korea has a time window when the American involvement in Vietnam is at its peak. Mm. And then it's possible to take actions uh, to somehow decapitate the South Korean regime because a classical guerrilla strategy was not really feasible. I don't know how much they realized it, but in any case, it was clear that this is not going to work. But Korean politics was always so personalized. So Mm. even the CIA had this feeling that if somehow, God forbid, uh, somebody kills Pak Chong-hee, maybe the whole regime would fall apart. So if the and that's exactly what Kim Il-sung was betting on too, wasn't it, probably, when he sent yes. the uh, commandos in 1968? Most probably. And this is here when I found something really interesting, that the attack was almost in the plan, you know, not in the execution, because mm-hmm. they did not go so far. But in the plan, it was very, very similar to the attack which the South Vietnamese guerrillas, the National Liberation Front, carried out against the presidential palace in Saigon. Mm. They got further, you know, they 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 were not stopped so far before. Yeah. But the idea was the same, that if we kill Nguyen Van Thieu, if we kill the prime minister, uh, we basically create such a sort of administrative chaos which we can take advantage of. So like cutting off the head of the the beast and then maybe the beast will collapse. Now for that paper, which sources did you use or was it where, where were the, the archival you know, resources that you were using? It was again mostly the Hungarian sources because we also had of course an embassy in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. So often it helped a lot because when the Vietnamese explained us that what they are going to do and why, then often it really struck you that uh, how similar it was to the North Koreans. You could see that sometime a delegation visits both countries, the Vietnamese and the North Koreans, and then you can put the things together. Now, what was um, North Korea's level of involvement actually in the Vietnam War? Were there uh, supposedly North Korean pilots over Vietnam skies? Oh, yeah, this is very much clear, very much clear. There are other scholars who wrote much more about it, like Jiu Kim, for example. In comparison to South Korean involvement, it was really very minimal. Mm. It did not really affect North Korean defense capabilities so much, like sending literally hundreds of thousands of soldiers as South Korea did. With regard to those South Korean soldiers in Vietnam, did the North Koreans try to attack them with psychological warfare or uh, encourage defections of South Korean troops? Yeah, I heard that, that this was tried with, without much effect because their propaganda was rather crude and not very making an effect in any way. For North Korea, I think this was just a secondary aspect. The more important aspect was that how to keep the Americans Mm. in Vietnam as long as possible. So it was an irony because ostensibly North Korea was helping Vietnam, but in practice it also wanted to prolong the American involvement Ah. instead of ending it as soon as possible. (laughs) There's somewhat of an ironic connection there in that uh, in 1951-52 Kim Il-sung wanted to end the Korean War as quickly as possible and Stalin's goal then was to prolong it as long as possible. So it's almost like history repeating itself. Yeah, although we can say that maybe Stalin did not have such a kind of clear-cut idea to prolong it as long as uh, possible, but 
he definitely had no hurry to go faster. Mm. It was not his finger which was bleeding. Mm-hmm. So for him, he could afford to wait. But Kim Il Sung felt very clearly that yeah. this is re- destroying his country. Now, as far as you've seen in the uh, archival evidence, do you believe that Kim Il-sung ever gave up military ambitions to unify the Korean Peninsula? Well, one thing is interesting that after the democratic transition... So in 1987 uh, in South Korea? After the democratic transition, North Korea did not carry out the same type of terrorist attacks against South Korean political regime as they did before. Mm. They, because they tried to kill Pak Chong-hee several times. They tried to kill John Tu-hwan. They blew up an airplane before the election, or rather the during the election campaign. Mm. And my understanding is very, diver, very diverging from the official narrative that this was their own kind of psychological trick to create the impression that Rotevu won the election only because uh, he created this anti-communist streak and turned public opinion against the North. But anyway, after the democratic transition, which doesn't mean they gave up the idea of unification, but I may say sort of it's a still a sort of progress if you don't try to blow up the president of next country yeah that that's certainly a forward movement there yeah well let's move on now to our uh, our last section this is on uh, the armstrong case uh, from start to finish uh, in late 2013 about seven years after your book uh, kim il-sung and the khrushchev era soviet dprk relations and the roots of north korean despotism professor charles armstrong korea foundation professor of korean studies at Columbia University published his own book, Tyranny of the Week, North Korea and the World, 1950 to 1992. Uh, This book was well received and positively reviewed across the field of Korean studies. Uh, Fast forward to two months ago on September 10th, 2019, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Columbia University, Maya Tolstoy, sent a letter to faculty colleagues in which she said, it is therefore with regret that I must inform you that Professor Charles K. Armstrong, Professor of History at Columbia, has been found to have committed research misconduct, specifically plagiarism, in his book Tyranny of the Week. Further down, she writes, Professor Armstrong, who is retiring at the end of 2020, will be on sabbatical for the academic year of 2019-2020. So that's quite a a development. Uh, Balaj, when did you first suspect that Charles Armstrong had plagiarized your book? On the first day when I saw the book, it didn't require a rocket science to see it. I did notice that there is something strange in some earlier publications. In 2011, in Shanghai, where I was, I noticed first that one article or working paper of Professor Armstrong, this like Necessary Enemies, it has some strange uh, similarities to mine. But I didn't, that time I did not attribute it to plagiarism. I mm. just felt that he found very similar sources and he just like, for some reason, doesn't want to mention me that I wrote about the same thing mm. years before. But when I got the book and I started reading it, particularly this exactly the same story about the famine because uh, it, this was like one of the most novel elements in my book it was so which famine was that 55 55 yeah because the other one i did not write them okay <laughs> so anyway it was so clear that uh, following my track in every step in this description of these events what happened during this famine how it started what caused it what happened and Never, never any reference to my work. Mm. But always references to Russian, sometimes it's German sources. So it really baffled me that uh, how on earth this could happen. What really fed me, made me feel that now this is something deliberate and it's more than simply like getting a sort of inspiration from me, but it's worse than that. When I I looked into the sources, and of course, if you see like Russian Foreign Minister archives or that this Papka, that Jelo, it sounds rather likely. 
What I did find totally suspicious that again and again the same topic is mentioned uh, and the document would have exactly the same date like mine. Mm. Now this was totally out of logic because you just cannot imagine that the Russians and the Hungarians would write the same topic exactly the same day every time. No way, it's like robots. So then I really wanted to know what is behind that. But it was a huge effort to get uh, real documents which like were used as a cover because it's not easy to find. (laughs) Now, six years ago, uh, the website SinoNK, which is run by Christopher Green, Stephen Denny and Adam Cathcart, uh, they wrote a a roundtable review of the book Tyranny of the Week, a a positive review. In response to that, uh, Charles Armstrong wrote, and I'll quote here, as readers know, Tyranny of the Week is the result of several years of research in the archives of North Korea's present and former communist partners, focusing especially on East European and Russian documents, though I draw on the temporarily open Chinese foreign ministry archives to some extent, as well as published material from South Korea, China, Russia, the United States, Japan, and of course, North Korea, end quote. Now, that's quite a a claim to make of of both breadth and depth. Uh, You, in in your book, um, focus exclusively on a a shorter period in Hungarian archives, and Charles Armstrong in his book says that he looked at quite a range of, of archival sources, Is he exaggerating? I mean, did he really spend years of research in the archives of North Korea's present and former communist partners? Where does this claim come from? The Russian materials are actually not from any archives. They are from a published book Mm. because uh, some South Korean scholars collected from the Russian archives, the foreign minister archives, really a huge amount of documents exactly from the same relevant period 53 to 60. So they were published in several volumes. Now we can find them in the National Library of Korea. Mm. So somehow I really don't know and I really didn't try to figure it out. Somehow Professor Armstrong got this volume. He still has it. He donated some parts of it to the Wilson Center. So the connection is very clear. Mm. And then he started using this uh, document collection in the very beginning, uh, picking a few documents from 53-55, but really not utilizing them in depth, like very, very trivial, small elements were used. So this this part is genuine. But for most of the part, the Russian documents are simply not valid, which are cited. When it comes to the East German documents, it's a much higher amount of documents are valid because after the period when my book ends, then Mm -hmm. he he used the real East German sources. So there, some of the East German sources are fake, others are not fake, Mm. but the proportion is not so bad like with the Russians. When, so you said that uh, basically as soon as you picked up the book and, and looked at it, uh, you knew immediately that this was uh, largely plagiarized from your own work. Uh, but instead of immediately making a, a fuss about it, uh, you, made your, you set about to prove your case quite methodically and slowly. Could you tell us about that? Why did you choose to do it that way? This is supposedly what uh, scholars and academic persons are supposed to do, not shout about, but prove the case. So if I, I feel that something is wrong, but I don't know for sure, I want to know first before mm. making anything. It was the problem that the references were made in a way that you could potentially assume that they did come directly from the Russian archives. But because Professor Armstrong mentioned only a visit to St. Petersburg, when Mm. there are no archives, and Ah. he never mentioned that he went to Moscow, where there are these archives. So it was a sort of like... It's a crucial mistake. Yeah, yeah. And so then I tried to get the information from the Wilson Center. And there they did not have all the materials, but at least they had a sort of like catalog that how the the documents are listed. 
And then I found the whole collection in Seoul, but then the Seoul library didn't have the catalog, mm. only the documents themselves. So now I had to put together what right. I found in Wilson Center with the one which I found in the Seoul library to reconstruct that which documents are real. And when you have the situation that the documents in is does exist but it doesn't contain what professor armstrong claimed to contain when it doesn't exist at all so it was massive work and really if i can really complain about anything was that how much good time of mine was mm. wasted because of that quite a lot of it yeah uh, did, were there other scholars who supported you in your in your quest yeah fortunately yes because I must say that without their help, I simply couldn't have been able to locate the sources. Uh, that the first person I asked was Underlinkov to do some sort of like a quick search in his own Russian materials. Mm -hmm. And then he looked it and he said he couldn't find them in his own collection. But of course, it doesn't prove that there is something really badly wrong. It just mm. means maybe. And then it was really fortunate that around that time, Professor Brian Myers was going to visit the Wilson Center. Mm. So then he went there and he did find a lot of Russian documents which were relevant for me. But it's a huge amount, so he could also copy us some sample to make clear how they look like. Yeah. And then I understood from the description that they are not the Russian original documents because there are some Korean script on that. Mm. So then I started to think, okay, then maybe this must be some sort of published collection which Koreans were involved in. And then I thought a bit more and then I made a guess that if it was published, then a big library should have it mm. somehow. It was a bit like a weird goose chase first because first I went to the wrong library which did oh. not have it. But then, uh, again, I made a guess that maybe the National Library will have. And then I asked Professor Myers to check the catalog. And he did find very quickly, indeed, something which was suspiciously similar. Mm. The, the documents of the Soviet embassy in Pyongyang from right. the same period. So then, with Professor Lankov, I went to the National Library and then we made a copy of the materials and then it was again work of months and months to read all mm. these, all these disc volumes to check every page every sentence is it there something or not mm -hmm. because you don't need to check only that exactly the same thing is there because then somebody may assume, okay, but somewhere else there is it. So yep. then, then it's just a small accidental mistake. Right. So I really had to check everything inside out. And if you look at it, like seven years, each year has a big volume to read it through in all in Russian hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of pages. It's really much work. Now, in September 2016, so this is almost three years after uh, Professor Armstrong's book was published, uh, Professor Brian Myers wrote a post called Revoking a Recommendation on his blog, uh, which the listeners can find at Steely Press. That's S-T-H-E-L-E-P-R-E-S-S dot -E -E -S com. Uh, why was he the person to make your allegation public? Um, because I was going very slow and uh, really like it was really unclear how and when I will be able to finish this because as I said some of the evidence I got in, in the summer of the same year 2016 uh, from the Wilson Center so this was like the final confirmation because then I could finally identify that which is the archival reference belonging to which document because I had the document now from Seoul but still the archival reference was not clear and so again I could not completely prove that the one which Professor Armstrong mentioned is the same which I found mm. but then I could prove but here there was the problem Wilson Center did not have all of them mm. only from certain years a few crucial years were missing from their collection and then I was still asking people all around that where I could find the archival references from the remaining part 
how I can find the original printed copy of the book which the librarians uh, mutilated very barbarously cutting out all this kind of uh, archival references mm. and I was asking these monks and monks going this way that way and it's totally understandable that Professor Myers felt that it's, the issue is already overdue three years after the publication of the work right. and then if I keep doing this then it will last forever and uh, and uh, we all die before it ever, you know, gets published. That does seem possible. Uh, our listeners could have a look at uh, steelypress.com. Uh, Brian Myers goes into a lot of detail about how the plagiarism was done. As I understand, there were two basic methods that uh, Charles Armstrong used to cover his tracks. And uh, one of them, and I'm quoting from your own uh, page here, uh, the use in the text of proper data apparently obtained from an unsighted and plagiarized source using a fabricated source. That's one way. And the other way, is uh, the use in the text of proper data apparently obtained from an unsighted and plagiarized source with an irrelevant, unrelated source cited in the attendant footnote. So those are the, the two major methods that he used. Uh, when, when this allegation came out in September 2016, how did he respond? Uh, he took it very low key. I really like it feels that he felt kind of under threat and first he tried to find some yeah quiet way out so very different from how for example madonna constantine reacted when she was caught in plagiarism because she went immediately on the offensive and said that it's it's a kind of like malicious accusation and that people are racist and all that so Professor Armstrong did the total opposite, going very quietly, first uh, approaching me and saying, well, maybe I should have cited you more and things like that. And then I just asked that if you could please show me the original documents, because then I could finally see clear in this matter. Mm. And he promised that, but never showed me anything. And later the university basically got the admission from him that he doesn't have them. Mm. What was the reaction of other academics to the allegations? I know that uh, Brian has written in his blog updates that uh, the American academic establishment all lined up to support uh, Professor Armstrong. Is that how you see it? Well, I wouldn't say everybody because, of course, this is always a generalization. And I am absolutely sure that Professor Brian Myers never wrote everybody or the establishment in general. But I do feel that the people who had power mostly sided with Professor Armstrong and the people who questioned his opinion or narrative uh, usually were people who had not enough power to do that. So therefore, they were always at risk. Mm. And what I can say about this, really, I must regret that some people couldn't understand one very important thing. It's not the matter whether a certain East European person is plagiarized or not. Who cares? It's not important, maybe. At least not for me so much. Mm. What is so important? That somebody wrote a book which is massively used, cited here and there. As a textbook in some university courses. Exactly. And this book is a minefield full of statements which are not true, full of sources which are not true. If somebody adopts the approach that let it leave it peace, don't touch it, accept it as it is, not Mm. complain, don't touch the matter. This person is basically adopting the approach you know of pushing people to go on the minefield and say i don't care Mm. it's my friend who wrote the book therefore it's not important Mm. and almost nobody among the professional coronist people ever adopted the approach that let's do an investigation of the sources exactly in the scholarly way what he wrote, what the other people say, what Salontai say, what Meyer say, and factually analyzing piece by piece. Instead, it was all over that is it proper to mention it or mm. not proper, or should have been taught quietly. And, and it was so much 
totally out of the logic of what should be in science that if there is a statement it should be verified double checked and then coming to a conclusion that who is telling the accurate uh, description this is what was not done and it was not realized that it's not me who is uh, like the victim it's basically everybody's a victim who bought a book and believe that it's a a book which is telling the truth. How did you formally take action? Did you send a, a letter of complaint to Columbia University and another one to uh, Cornell University Press, the publisher of the book, outlining the plagiarisms? Yeah. After like two months when it was clear that uh, nothing is coming out of the matter because I couldn't get any satisfactory answer from Professor Armstrong, then I contacted both. And mm-hmm. Cornell University Press never did anything until Columbia much, much later finally made a step. So they just uh, said, we stick to our author and that's the end of the story. Mm, They even published a second edition without calling it a second edition, just uh, saying it was a reprint with corrections, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that this was again a kind of weird thing to do because all the corrections was were based on my first list of so-called, you know, problems. Mm. How long was that first list? Do you remember? It was around 76 uh, cases altogether. So some of them they corrected. Some of them they still left it there. I don't know why some of them were considered less plagiarized and less fabricated than Mm. the others. There are others which I discovered later and published later. They just disregarded it and went ahead. So in the full knowledge that there are still cases of plagiarism, let's publish it anyway because Mm. it helps Professor Armstrong to get it published. Now, the last time I looked at that list, uh, it's called A Table of 98 Examples of Source Fabrication, Plagiarism and Text Citation Disconnects in Charles K. Armstrong's Tyranny of the Week. There were, as the title suggests, 98 examples. Um, uh, Listeners can find the entire list as a PDF file uh, either at Brian Meyer blog uh, steelypress.com or at academia.edu where a lot of your uh, articles are published to Professor Salantai. To go back then to uh, to your the complaint that you made to Columbia University, in September of this year, the website Retraction Watch published the letter that I quoted earlier from uh, Dean uh, Maya Tolstoy and also a uh, 20-page draft report uh, labeled Confidential, uh, which was dated August 17, 2018. And this is a draft report of the um, Committee of Investigation or the Disciplinary Committee that looked into the matter. Uh, do you know how this document became leaked to that website? There are some possibilities, but I don't want to go into guesses. Uh, listeners can find that uh, document at the website retractionwatch.com. Uh, there have been a few articles there about the uh, the Charles Armstrong case there. So the, the full uh, URL I will try to have added uh, in our show notes. The uh, that 20-page report included some, uh, some findings, and one interesting finding that, that uh, we learned from that document is that Charles Armstrong began lifting your research not in 2006 uh, or 2005 when your book was initially published, but as far back as 2003 uh, when you had your, uh, your PhD dissertation. Did this surprise you? Yeah, this was definitely a shock. The first uh, occasions which I myself were able to to find they were dated 2006. This was really a shock because honestly I just met uh, Professor Armstrong not long before that. Mm. He came to Budapest and we talked and really my impression was that we are on good terms and sometime I would need some information and he would tell me he, he sent me the copy of his previous book. Mm-hmm. So I did not feel he was like a close friend or like this, but it was like a cordial good relationship. Mm, a, a collegial sort yeah. of exchange so, of information. Yeah. yeah, so apparently what I could figure out from the report and what I heard later that it was really for his tenure application mm. that he really felt he badly needed it and this is why but still it was such a kind of 
huge discrepancy in power, you know, that he was already a professor at Columbia University and then getting the information from a just graduating student mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe is a sort of like mm. overkill. Now, after the findings on page uh, 38 to 40 of that report, uh, the committee wrote some recommended corrective actions. Uh, first of all, uh, they recommended a formal acknowledgement to uh, Dr. Salantai by Dr. Armstrong. Findings should be delivered to Cornell University University Press, and there should be a public announcement made by Columbia University. Uh, Number two, that you should receive a gift of research funding for a suitable amount. The uh, amount suggested was $25,000 in recognition of the time, effort, and resources expanded by you uh, to to prove the case of plagiarism. Uh, Recommendation number three, that all copies of Armstrong's first edition book still in stock must be withdrawn, uh, and that Armstrong and Columbia should work to make sure that this happens. Number four, if a third edition of uh, The Tyranny of the Week is released, it should correct further errors and a preface should include acknowledgement of indebtedness to your own work. And number five, the university provost should receive a copy of the report to determine whether further steps are needed. Uh, As far as you know, did any of these recommended corrective actions take place? Mm, Not really, not really, because eventually the problem was that only the faculty was informed. Uh, So Columbia never even made a public announcement of it that which would have been enabled to, to inform the people that actually what happened. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, it was really like a tip of the iceberg because if he committed the plagiarism in a book published in 2013, this is completely ignoring the fact that he committed plagiarism in many works before and already in his tenure application. So I don't feel that this was like doing justice to the people who worked so hard on Mm. the investigation report because it was really a very, very well written report. And I I really wish uh, that the committee's work would have been more honored by the university administration. Would it be fair to say that you are unsatisfied with the outcome from the uh, complaint to Columbia? Well, how to say. I never asked for money. So the fact that this particular issue was turned down, I don't feel any way offended by that because I was always pursuing the issue of getting it on record that this was not an accident. Mm. And it's impossible that somebody would do it so many times totally accidentally, but it should be recorded officially that this was deliberate. The university was really unwilling to do apparently, because if the faculty is informed, and I must say I was not informed even about the fact that the faculty was informed. Mm. So it means that I have nothing in my hand to tell people who would tell me, well, you accuse Professor Armstrong of something he did not commit. Have you ever received anything, uh, any letter, document, certificate, anything from Columbia University? Not in the form, but I could have openly shown to anybody. Mm. All, all the materials I got were confidential. They never gave me anything which would have officially proved that I was right and Professor Armstrong was wrong. Wow. And would you still like to see that happen? Now it's very unlikely that they would do it, so let them at the rest. Mm. Now, the uh, the website SinoNK, which I mentioned earlier, uh, wrote in a recent update to the reaction to, to the matter, um, let us take this opportunity to belatedly encourage anyone seeking insight on North Korea's foreign relations during the latter decades of the short 20th century to consult instead less celebrated but uncorrupted sources, most notably those of Balazs Salantai, who is the primary victim of Armstrong's reprehensible conduct over a period of years. Uh, How do you react to that? It's very kind of them, kind of belated. But as I said, it's not about me against Professor Armstrong. It's more that the whole scholarly community got badly deceived for years and it should have been recognized that it's not our right to be deceived and uh, we should stick to the person who deceived us. But 
if something is black it should be admitted to be black and instead of saying that it's white uh, so let's uh, talk about a preview of what you're working on what topics are you researching these days well, there are several issues and it's a bit a problem because if you try to work on one and then it often gets into the mm. way of something else mm. so one thing which i really need to finish as soon as possible it's a book chapter on the evolution of the North Korean mm. political system from the beginning to in an overview, even almost to the present. I tried to make a sort of analysis uh, in the conclusion of my book, but it ended much earlier. And in any case, it was more about the origins, about the Kim Il-sung period yeah. than what came later. And also in this chapter, I need to address some of the like conflicting opinions that how much unique North Korea is, is it leftist, is it rightist, is it neo-confucian, whatever it is. And it's really like walking on eggshells because you really don't want to offend anybody. And if you have a different opinion, this is a different opinion. It's not meant to be a personal attack. Unfortunately, not everybody gets it in the field when some people don't read others just because they don't like them. Right. And will you be publishing any uh, any more books in the near future? I hope I can. I hope I can. It really takes some time to complete it because I have a lot of materials for that. I still need to do more archival research. So before I am more in closer to achieving this objective, I would prefer not to talk about the specific topic of the book. <laughs> I understand. Do you want to uh, reveal your email address on the podcast here for listeners who are interested? Uh, A over L, uh, like at Yahoo CO UK. Okay, so that's A over L at yahoo.co.uk yes okay and we'll i will try to have that uh, put up on the, the show notes as well are you uh, are there other places where people can find your um uh, your work are you on twitter or anything like that or should they go to academia.edu yeah this would be the best i used to be on twitter and facebook but then i got some sort of uh, like hacking scare and oh. I just wanted to make sure that it won't happen because if I lose all my files from my computer it would really kill me off for a long time. Yeah, it certainly would. Uh, well, once again I want to uh, draw this to a close. Do you have any final thoughts to leave us with? Well, difficult to summarize all that. I may say that this experience left me a little bit bitter because when I started my research long, long ago, around 2000 or so, then I felt that I am among friends mm. and, and then it will help me. And if they need help, I will give them what I can and back and forth. Especially because it's such a small field, isn't it? I mean, uh, Korean studies, North Korean studies, North Korean history, it's a very small field. Indeed. But I'm, uh, my understanding was much broader because I always had interest in Vietnam, Mongolia mm. and the Cold War. So it was a much broader meaning. And then what really f felt disappointing that how much uh, scholars in this story, how many of them really considered institutions more important than the facts. Mm -hmm. That if an institution would say this is this, then we believe it. And then if the institution doesn't say anything, then we should not say anything. So it's like uh, not the intellectual mind which should work that way. It's the bureaucratic mind which works that way. Yeah. So to adopt this attitude that until Colombia declares that the black is black and it's not white, then we should pretend that it's white mm. and maybe it's white. And this is weird a bit to me because the very same people who would speak that way, they would be often extremely open and vocal when 
expressing opinion about say American politics, Hillary Clinton and Trump and things like that. And they would be totally offended if anybody told them, oh, you should not believe all these allegations about Trump and collusion until the Mueller report Mm. is out. And then before it, you should just shut up about the matter. So I felt it's a bit like simply non-academic approach to blindly believe in institutions and until they say something then we should not say anything because we have our own mind and second institutions are not perfect i want to ask one final question Uh, what advice would you give to any uh, younger scholars or academics who are who find themselves uh, in the same situation as you that their work has been plagiarized by somebody who is uh, much more famous and powerful what should they do the first issue is really to make it clear what happened, to get the facts cleared up as much as possible, to document everything as clearly as possible. If the case is really very clear, I really cannot advise somebody to take the same action if the plagiarism is like two or three cases, you know, because then it's a huge risk. Here, the, then the problem is really that if it happened one time, it may happen again and again. again. So it's something I really cannot advise somebody to take on half of the coronist establishment for plagiarized cases one or two or three but if something is really serious then i think it really must be said even if it's uncomfortable to somebody Mm -hmm. so i think it's it's not good for anybody if a, a known deceit or manipulation or fabrication is knowingly left untouched because it's simply not a academic thing to do Okay, well, we'll leave it there. I want to thank you and I uh, encourage you to, uh, to keep doing your research and publishing. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for your time today, Professor Balaj Salantai. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialized journalism on all matters related to North Korea. And at the uh, Christmas uh, gift-giving season, visit nkshop.org and use the podcast, uh, use the code podcast at the checkout to receive a $10 discount voucher. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for for facilitating this podcast and thanks to Arias Dare our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises awkward silences and bodily functions etc and hopefully that uh, sentence that I just messed up costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Unicorea Fund for which we are extremely grateful thanks and listen again next time <laughs>